Amen. Good morning, folks. Good to see you this morning. If you're here for the first time, can I give you a big welcome? My name's Steve, and we're also one of the leaders here as well. Can I encourage you, if you, can I also say this, that internships are not just for those who are students. Let's not fall into the, the trap of thinking that's something that the young people do. We've had interns in their 40s. I think we had an intern in their 50s. 50s, and I, I wasn't doing anything else. I would also apply to do the internship at Cornerstone Church. It's that good. Ben leads that, and it's fantastic. And it's part-time, folks. It's part-time. So actually, you're able to continue with some work and engage in that. So have a think, have a pray, see what the Lord might be doing, and speak to Ben, and there is a process for you to apply and to go through that. That'll be great. Grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 19. If you have joined us here for the first time, we're going through the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible, and we get to a point in the book which is like a seam. It's like, in some sense, the halfway mark of the book. God, in his goodness and his graciousness, has saved his people Israel, who he had made promises to, to say that he would bless them, that he would take them to a, a, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But then they find themselves in slavery for 400 years under the oppression of the Egyptians. And God, in his goodness and his kindness, remembers his promise, comes to God's people in through a deliverer by the name of Moses and saves them. And saves them and brings them to himself. Now, after coming out of Egypt, it's been about seven long weeks. And we have seen during that time God's grace and his mercy towards them despite their grumbling. And now we're going to read that he brings them to a mountain. And it's here where we're going to see him and see the process of him forming them to be the people that he has saved them to be. We'll look at three things. We're going to see first the reality and the order of God's grace. We're then going to see the terrifying yet approaching presence of God. And then we're going to see the mediator who ensures that the people live. So grab your Bibles, we're going to read, I'm going to stop and talk, then we'll read a little bit more, then I'll stop and talk. So grab your Bibles, verse 1, Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Number one, the reality and order of grace. The promise that God made to Israel via Moses was that he was going to save them from Egypt. We saw that in Exodus chapter 3. He is going to save God's people from Egypt, and then he's going to take them to a land. And I quote, verse 8 of chapter 3, a good, broad land that is flowing with milk 
and honey. The picture of something that is vast and something that is beautiful and wonderful and nourishing and life-giving. God promised that. And God and God in and through Moses basically said to Israel, this is where we're going to take you, so trust us. Trust us. Now, what we've read already and what we will read, there will be a few blips on the way, but God's people in the main will trust and they will follow. But the route by which God takes his people, and we read that in verses 1 or 2, is one which none of them would have expected. Now, you've got a map that's showing up behind me. If you look at that map, on the left-hand side, you see a black dot. See that first black dot? No? Okay, we need to make it bigger. Do you feel that? Do you see it? We can interact, folks. Don't worry. It's, it's okay. We're going to talk about not coming to the presence of God. I'm just a man. You can say yes. All right? See that black dot there? That's Egypt. That's where they started off, and they came down. You followed it through. They go across the top end of the Red Sea, and as they follow down verses 1 and 2, but look, where they've landed is right near the bottom, right at the bottom, Mount Sinai. Now, go back to the dot, the first dot. The promised land is right across the top. God has taken them in the opposite direction to the promised land. God takes them to a place that is farther away from the promised land than Egypt was even. And he actually takes them into a place that was far worse than Egypt. He takes them right into the desert. And it's at the foot of a mountain in a desert at the furthest point away from where they thought they were going, this is where God meets his people. It was on this very mountain that God appeared to Moses in chapter 3, and it was this very mountain that he said, I'm going to bring my people back to. Folks, what we see here, that God takes his people down an unexpected route, and it's there where he, he meets them. And folks, this is often the reality of how God's grace works in our lives. Often. See, you come to Christ, don't you? You give your life to him, and then things seem to get worse. See, things seem at times to get harder in some way. Relationships with family may, may break down. And if you're honest, you feel that you are being led further away from the things that you hope God was going to do in your life. So often, folks, the reality of God's grace in our lives follows this. But the question is, why? Why does it follow this? See, what we see here is the beginning of a year process of God meeting his people in the desert at the foot of a mountain. And he is going to form them by his word. He's going to show them the implications, what it is to be his people. He's going to help them apply that. And he is preparing them for the promised land. He's preparing them for what he has to come. See, the leading of them in the opposite direction in order to see, and in the, in, sorry, the leading of them in the opposite direction is in order that they see him and know him clearly. And for them to be shaped, which is a means of grace. It's a means of God moving towards us in ways that we do not expect. It's a means by which God leads us to places and in ways that we do not expect. Folks, this is so uncomfortable for us in our culture. Because if we're honest, our understanding or our desire for how God's grace in our lives 
should work is actually a spirit of entitlement. That's what it is. We can think things and even say things. I follow you, Jesus. And because I follow you, I think this is where my life should go. Well, look what I'm doing for you. Look how I'm saving you. Why, why are you leading me here? Folks, God will lead us to places to remind us of our need of him. To show us his love for us, to reveal to us who he is. And sometimes he leads us into the desert. And sometimes he leads us farther away from what we think we need in order to give us life and to give us what we actually need, which is clarity on who we are without him. Clarity on who he is. And clarity on who he has called us to be. I've been in the desert. I've been taken there. God's led me and my family to places that I'm thinking, why is this happening? When everything else seemed to be going right, it ended up like this. And I'm telling you now, folks, it's in those moments where God reveals to me my need for him and how much he loves me. And in that process, he forms me and continues to form me to be the person that he's called me to be, his child, his child. It was John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, who was a, a, a slave trader but became an abolitionist. He said this, no one learned that they were a sinner by being told. They had to be shown. They had to be shown. And folks, as you read through the Bible, we see this unexpected route in many, many places. Many, many places. There's two that I'm thinking of. One, one this unexpected route we see with Joseph. You know the story of Joseph, it comes before, it's the story of Joseph that precedes the story of Moses and, and the Exodus. And what, what you see with Joseph is this young, arrogant, self-obsessed young man who is flaunting any gifts that he's been given, whether that's from his father or God above, before all his brothers were really jealous. He was an arrogant little so-and-so. If God had just left him there, what would have happened? But what does God do in and through means means that we struggle to see God leads him. He's sold into slavery. His brothers say that he's been killed. He ends up being, uh, being a slave in someone's house. He ends up being found guilty of something that he's not done. He's years and years and years and years in the desert place, further away than he ever thought that he would be when he was at home with his father. And then God, in his goodness, saves him and brings him through. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. He then eventually meets his brothers, and his brothers are terrified, and he says this, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The route was a route that he would never have chosen. But God took him to the desert and further away from anything that he may have promised to his people in order to form him to be the person that he called him to be. But the greatest route I think that nobody expected is when the Lord Jesus Christ came and said this, the kingdom of God is at hand. And God's people all around the Pharisees, the religious leaders, everyone was expected that he was going to come and bring that kingdom in a way that would overthrow the Romans and bring freedom for God's people. But no, what happens? The God who proclaims that the kingdom is at hand, the man who is fully man and fully God, dies on the cross in order to bring about the kingdom that he says was coming. 
we know that not only the means of grace, but grace itself is shown, given, shown and given and realized through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Folks, as Christian people, we know the route that God has taken to save us is not a route that we would choose. Amen? That's why Jesus says, if you would come after me, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. My question to you is, are you ready for this? Are you ready for that? Are you prepared for where God in his grace may lead you for your good? John Newton said again, everything is needful that he sends. Everything. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Israel were experiencing the reality of grace. But in this, God was also showing them the order of grace. Have a look at verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people. Folks, what we see here, especially in verses 4 and 6, is the order of grace in the lives of God's people. See, God here tells them how they have been saved, what their response to that salvation should be, and what that response will give. See, we see there verses 4, the saving acts of God. We see the grace of salvation. God says to them, you have seen what I have done for you and how I've defeated your enemy, how I've saved you, how I have raised you up on eagle's wings. I just lifted you out. I just lifted you out. You didn't have to fight to get out. You didn't have to run out. You didn't have to open any gates. On one sense, you didn't even have to walk out. I know they did. but I lifted you up and you flew out like being on the wings of an eagle. And not only did I bring you out, I have brought you to myself, he says. Folks, the order of salvation for them is the same for us. We do nothing. God does everything. God does all the work. We don't have to run out of our sin. We don't have to fight out of our sin and our brokenness. We don't have to push any gates and we don't have to choose because he raises us up like wings on the wings of an eagle. God does all the work and all the salvation is complete at that point. Amen? He does all the work. But then we see God calling them to respond to the saving work in obedience. And we see the grace of obedience. What does he say? Now, therefore. Now, therefore. So in light of the fact that you have been saved and I have brought you to myself, I want you to obey my voice and I want you to keep my covenant. He is calling them to obey his word, which they know they can trust. Why? Because he has saved them. I'm going to do this. And he did it. 
I'm going to do this, and he did it. I'm going to do this, and he did it. Folks, notice that the grace of salvation, God's work to save us, the saving acts of God proceed any call to obey the law, any call to obey God. God has reached out to save, and it's now those whom he has saved that he reveals his word to, he reveals his law to. You see that? This order of grace so far, if we are honest, is counterintuitive to us, isn't it? It's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to human beings because our default is this. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me what laws I need to keep. Tell me what I need to achieve. And I will do my best to keep them, to achieve them, so that I can be saved. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. This keep the law, and this is what you'll get. Keep the law, and this is what we get. Every Christmas, we have the Christmas threat, don't we? The Christmas threat. That's what it is. If you're good, Father Christmas will come. But if you're not good, he won't. You will be blessed. You will enjoy. You will have everything that this wonderful time of the year offers if you're good and go to bed. We have reward-based parenting now. Parenting is all about rewards, which I think is bonkers, by the way, because we're breathing a generation of kids that never lose and breeding a generation of kids that are never naughty. We're breathing the generation of kids that are entitled. Totally. If you do this, this is what you'll get. If you do this, this is what you get. And even when they don't do it, there's no consequences whatsoever. Folks, we swim in the waters of law first, then deliverance. We swim in the waters of do what I say, and then you will be rewarded. We don't swim in the waters of grace. That's why it's counterintuitive. Now, for those of us who've been Christians for years, this is gospel centrality basics, but we need to constantly be reminded of this. See, God didn't say to Israel and doesn't say to us, obey my law and I will save you. No, he says, I have saved you, so now obey me. Folks, the person who obeys to be delivered, the person who obeys so they can be delivered or to be saved, they obey out of fear. They totally obey out of fear. They have things rattling through their mind and they say, I never know if I've done enough. My life feels like it's in the balance. I really hope I've done enough when I get there. They never know. But the person who obeys because they have been saved obeys out of love and obeys out of gratitude. It's very different. Can I just, let me just stop here. As a Christian person, there is nothing, nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, period. So why do we think our life's still in the balance? Why do we think I'm just trying my best, I'm trying to crack on, as though God's standing there taking a, 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 you know, a tick sheet of what we've done and what we haven't done, that we're obeying or not obeying, or we having our quiet times or not having our quiet times. The reality is this, we have been saved, so therefore it should be our delight out of love and gratitude and thankfulness for what he has done for us that we should obey. That is so different. That is so different. And the person who obeys from understanding that they have first been saved, obey to please him. 
obey to honor him, and also obey to resemble him. Folks, God here is showing the order of grace. I have graciously saved you, therefore obey me, and then you will know the blessings that obedience give. You see that? Verses five and six. If you keep my covenant, if you keep it, you shall be, verse six, kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You will be, verse five, a treasured possession. See, there is grace of the blessings of people who walk in obedience because they have been saved. See, the interesting thing here is that we can start to think, okay, this feels a bit contradictory to what we've just looked at. God saves, therefore I obey. However, if I obey, I get something. Isn't that works-based blessings in some way? Doesn't it? It feels like that. God saved me, so I obey. And God is saying, if I obey, I'll receive these. So it feels like I've still got to do something. It feels like a work-based righteousness. It feels like a work-based blessing. Now, in his commentary, one that we've been using to look at, Alec Matoya basically says this, that God is saying... The blessings that I am promising because of obedience are already yours, but also not yet yours. They're already yours, but they're not yet yours. Now, I know that's a head wrecker, but bear with him, all right? And bear with me because I think I agree with him. And the reason why I agree with him is because of what God has said in verse 5. God has said in verse 5, Obey my voice and keep my covenant. He doesn't say our covenant. And he doesn't say obey my voice so we can make a covenant. No, he says keep my covenant. We need to see, folks, that the covenant of God is all one-sided. It's all one-sided. It's all him. He has already saved. He has already brought them and brought him, brought us to relationship with himself. And obedience to this saving grace is their way and our way of making that covenant formal. It's their way and our way of receiving and enjoying the blessings that are already there for them and already there for us. See, God is saying these blessings are yours in principle because I have saved you and because I am committed to you by my grace. But it's now through obedience that you will realize them tangibly. Folks, it's like unity in the church. Psalm 133, it's one of my favorite psalms. It says that God will command the blessing when God's people dwell in unity. And I think we misunderstand that passage because we think we have to fight for unity amongst the church. No, we don't. We are united because of Christ. That is a reality. But we miss out on the blessing of what it is to be united together. Why? Because we don't live in it. We don't dwell in the unity. We don't step in. We don't walk in obedience. So the blessing is there, but we don't understand and feel it in all its fullness. The other one is marriage. We worked out last year, Sean and I, that I've been involved in nearly 100 weddings, right? That's unbelievable. Since I was 16, I've either been singing at them, attending them, taking them, speaking at them, whatever. And every wedding is the same. The same. Sorry, ladies. They're all the same. Apart from ours. Ours was beautiful, babe. But they are. Because what happens right at the front 
is that there is a covenant that is made that's not one-sided, that's both-sided before God. And that covenant is real. But till you intentionally step in what, to what it is to be a husband and what it is to be a wife, you don't realize the blessing of that. You just don't. It's like a child and parent relationship. The thing is, my kids will always be my children. Always, whatever happens. But if I don't step in to the blessing of what it is to be a father, I don't realize the blessing, even though the blessing is there. And if you're a child, you also will always have them as your parents. They will always be your parents. They may die, but they will always be your parents. You will always recognize them as your parents. Whatever, whatever happens, they're, they're parents. And unless you step in intentionally into what it is to be a child, honoring and loving your parents, you miss out on the blessing of what it is. Now, what are the blessings? What are the blessings that, that we see here? What are the blessings that God says, I've saved you, so obey and keep my covenant, and you will receive these blessings. The first one, he says, you will be my treasured possession. You will be my treasured possession. The word treasured there is a word that is used for a king who owns all the wealth of the kingdom, but he has this treasured possession that he keeps in close quarters. He keeps with him all the time. It is something that is so precious to him. He, he knows exactly where it is all of the time, and he has it close in close quarters. God says this, all the world is mine, but you on my treasured possession. Folks, those of us who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, who've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you do not feel like someone else's treasured possession, you are his. Amen? You are his. And folks, God wants us to obey him into that relationship so that we treasure him like he treasures us. See, part of the blessing of obeying God is that we get to treasure him. We get to know him more. We get to see the wonder of what he's done for us. We get to understand more that before the foundation of the world, he'd set his affections on someone like me. And as we step into that, we learn to treasure and know him more. On this, Tim Keller, who's a pastor for America, says that when you fall in love with someone, you listen, don't you? I hope you do. <laughs> You listen to them. You observe them. You, you, you spend time getting to know them and to find out what pleases them. And because of their love for you and because of your love for them, you seek the will of the beloved. You seek what the will is of the person that you love and you respond accordingly. And in doing so, let me tell you this, fellas, you are blessed. Amen? you listen to your wife, if you know your wife, you see what pleases her, you seek the will of the beloved, you are blessed. Folks, our listening and, and our obeying his word is seeking the will of the one who loves us, the beloved. And in doing so, we are blessed. We are his treasured possession and as we listen and obey, we seek his will for us and we realize the blessings of being the people that he says, I'm going to keep you in close quarters. Amen? That's a great blessing, isn't it? Amen. What is the other blessing? That you will be a holy nation, a set-apart nation. 
Holy means set apart. You're going to be some, a nation of people that are going to look different. A community of people who are going to live differently. A people who are shaped by the good news of my salvation for you, my gospel. And you will be marked by that grace. You will be marked by that. And folks, as we read through the Word of God, what we, what, we will, what we will see as you read through Exodus and as you read through the Word of God in fully, what you see that the approach of God's people towards issues like money, sex, power, look different to all the other people that are around, all the other nations. That's why in verse 15, and we'll look at this in a minute, before they're able to come even close towards God, they have to refrain from sexual relations. Why is that? Because all the pagan nations around them had a different view on what it was to engage in sexuality. And actually what they'd done, they'd layered that onto their worship. So to come to their gods required the distortion of sexual intimacy. You are going to be different, he says. And the blessing of being a people who live in a different way, that is countercultural, that displays to the world what it looks like to be human beings who are in a right relationship with their maker, is something, folks, that is amazing. Amazing. Israel were being told that's who they were, and God was going to be giving them his law to show them what it would look like and how they would live it out. Now for us, we sit at the wonderful position of living after the cross and resurrection and having the fullness of his word. And we see how that figures out and we see how that plays out. We see how Jesus helps us understand that more in the Sermon of the Mount. We see how Paul unpacks that more as you read through his epistles, specifically things like 1 Corinthians. How do we figure out what it looks like to live as God's people as the holy nation that he says that we are. And why do we know that this is a blessing? Why do we know that this is true? Because there are many of you in this room who've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ because you were captured by the way Christian people live. You were captured by the way people, Christian people thought, the hope that they had the understanding that they had, the blessings that you saw amongst your friends in their families, in their marriages, how people dealt with singleness, how people dealt with, 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 with issues of influence. Yeah, there's lots of distortion. There's lots of brokenness. But many of you come to know Lord Jesus because you were captured by the set of partners of God's people. And when you are part of God's people, seeing God move in that way, that is a blessing. Amen? It's a blessing. He says the blessing will, you will be set apart, you'll be a holy nation. The other blessing is that you will be a kingdom of priests. Priest means mediators, representatives. And the theme of Exodus is that God saves his people to display his glory to them, then to display his glory through them. As his people who realize the blessings of being his treasure and living in a countercultural way that is shaped by the gospel, will enjoy the blessings of representing the God of glory in this dark world. We will bring his glory. We will be the means by which the world will know and see God. Amen? That's what he says to them. I'm going to use you, a broken or busted group of people, to display my glory to the world 
and the world will be turned upside down for his glory and for the good of humanity. The question I have, though, is do we, in light of the saving grace of God, do we realize the blessings that are ours in and through the grace of obedience? Do we, do you? Folks, the first characteristic of the saved is that they possess, know, and live by the word of God. He says, I have made my covenant with you. Obey me, and you will know the blessings of what it is to be my people. Folks, the order of this salvation, the order of this grace, should never change. God saves, God's people respond in obedience, and we enjoy the blessings of what that means. But our failure to formalize the blessings that are ours through the grace of obedience means we miss out on so much. It means we fail to enjoy the love he has for us, and we struggle to see the evidence of his grace, and then ultimately we miss him. We miss him. God, before he gives Israel his wonderful law, gives them a summary of his heart for them. And folks, that's the same heart that he has for us. Amen? Amen. You don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his love. But he graciously saved us in and through his son, Jesus. See, we then see the terrifying yet approaching presence of God, verses 9 to 20. I'm not going to read it because we don't have time. Read it when you get home. I encourage you. Read the word of God. Let it change you. But what we see here clearly in this passage is that God is terrifying. That God is unapproachable. Yet he is approaching his people. Do you see that? He's approaching his people. In Hebrews 12, it says this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That passage that we've just had read from Hebrews, if you look at that and then just glance down at 19 as well, and 19, we see... We see what is written there because of the presence of God. We see blazing fire. We see gloom. We see tempest. We've seen the sound of a voice that made the hearers beg for it to stop in Hebrews. We see Moses, the one who, who God was using, trembling with fear. We see verse 16 of chapter 19. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was thick cloud. There was trumpet blasts. Verse 19, there was fire. Folks, God... The God that we worship is not a cute, fuzzy, woodsy teddy bear that we can roll out on a Sunday and we can pray to, we can raise our hands and we can get all emotional over. No, God is terrifying. And as you read through God's word, you see when Jacob wrestled with God, he, he met a wrestler. When you read through Job, God is a hurricane. When you see John in the book of Revelation, he falls down dead because he sees Christ with a sword coming out of his mouth. 
We see Moses in Exodus 33 saying, can I see you? He's like, no way. My glory will kill you. And Ezekiel was so overcome with the terif- terrifying nature of God, he just goes nuts in Ezekiel. Well, we don't even, can't even figure out what he's trying to describe. Folks, God is un- unapproachable. That makes the wonder of salvation far more, far sweeter, doesn't it? He is unapproachable. And as we read in verses 19 through, from 9 through to 20, we see that because he is unapproachable, God puts limits and he instructs his people. Verse 10, he says to consecrate themselves. Well, we don't know the specifics. It probably means some sort of washing for two days. He tells them that they have to wash their garments. And the washing of their garments would indicate the process of consecration. It, it includes setting aside sort of the regular things that they do in the day to prepare themselves for something that is really important. And them being ready and wearing certain clothes displays the intention of the wearer. It's like, it's like a wedding again. When I was in the police, when I was in the police, I actually stopped the wedding car. I actually stopped the wedding car because the wedding car was late, all right? Standard, right? The wedding car was late for the service, was speeding, and I pulled it over. I sort of pulled it over for a bit of fun as well because I knew what it was. But anyway, I pulled it over, all right? I left the police long ago. It's, you know, don't write an email. It was disgraceful. Abusing your influence. No, I just pulled it over. Anyway, I pulled it. I'm like, where are you going? And the girl said to me, where do you think I'm going? Why? Because the clothes that she was wearing showed me the intention of where she was going. You see that? A bride wears a dress because she is a bride. And by the third day, we read there that the people were ready to present themselves as purified at heart and purposing in holiness, and their fresh clothes symbolized this. There were limits they had to wash. They had to wash their clothes. They had to wait till the trumpets had blasted from the mountain, verse 13. And if any man or beast, verse 13, touched the mountain, they would be killed. See, through these limits, God is preparing Israel for a pattern of worship that will be embodied in the tabernacle. There will be limits. There will be barriers. Why? Because God is holy and he is unapproachable. Folks, he is terrifying. And the reason the limits are put in place is because of his holiness. And because sinners, people like you and me, cannot come into the presence of a holy God. If we could, he is therefore not holy. He is therefore not set apart. It is his holiness and it is his glory that will kill us. He is so set apart, he can't even look upon sin. And for sinners to be in the presence of a terrifying God is a terrifying thing. As you read through the Bible, you see this. When you read Isaiah 6, and he sees God sitting on a throne. He sees the glory of God. And what does he do? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The holiness and the set-apartness of God displays where he is. I am a man of unclean lips. Woe to me. Basically what he's saying is, I I should die. Again, John, when he sees the wonder of Christ in Revelation, falls down as though he is dead. On some level, this is really hard for us to comprehend in our culture. Isn't it? It is. Because the sense of being a sinner at all, let alone being so bad that we would die, is an alien concept. (laughs) 
That's because we all view ourselves with some sort of virtue. We all look at ourselves and say, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Even if we come to the realization that we are, or if we've done something bad, our response can still be, yes, I, I am that, or I've done that, but I'm not as bad as that person. Or what I've done is not as bad as that. Folks, even when we get a glimpse of what we are capable of, we still view ourselves as some sort of virtue. However, what's interesting is, when we find ourselves in the presence of those who are better than us, and we have no virtue to hang on to, this can be something that affects us. It can affect us. For some of you, when you realize that you're not the cleverest person in the room, that someone has achieved more makes you feel inadequate in comparison. Or for the child on the football pitch that realizes that they can't play like the others and the game passes them by, what's their response? I don't want to play anymore because compared to them, I'm nothing. When you're overlooked for a promotion and your colleague gets it, Folks, being in the presence of others who have more, who have achieved more, who are more talented, who have healthier relationships, who seem to love Jesus more, who serve him more, for some of us, being in the presence of those who are better than us at some level highlights things of us, and we feel unworthy to be in their presence or to have their time. On some level, it destroys us. Folks, Let's be honest, if getting into the presence of human superlatives has the potential to destroy us, what must it be like to be in the presence of God? When we see his glory, when we see his holiness compared to us, when we truly are in his presence and truly are in the presence of someone who is better, God is terrifying. God is unapproachable, yet we see him approaching. We see him approaching. See, all the limits are in place in order for him to come to his people. What does he say, verse 9? I am coming to you. He says, I'm coming to you. Verse 18, the Lord, he descends on the mountain in fire. And verse 9, he is coming to them in a cloud. Why? so that they could hear God speak, and so they would believe Moses. He knows that he is unapproachable, but he puts limits in place so that he can be amongst his people, that he can approach us. Folks, there is no other God that is around of any other religion where the God stands far away, never comes to us at any point. Whereas the God of the Bible, even though he was holy and glorious and unapproachable for sinners to come towards him, puts limits for humanity in place so he could come to them. And God moves towards his people for the benefit of his people. And what we see here are two things. Firstly, we see the symbol of fire. It's interesting, the symbol of fire. It's the, that symbol of, of holiness and covenant given. Genesis 3 verse 5, that holiness sets apart. Uh, 3 verse 15, God's people that disobeyed him in the garden. He kicks them out the garden and there's angels with flaming swords of fire they can't get back in it's a separation 
You see, in Genesis 15, as God makes a promise, a covenant with Abraham, the covenant is signed and sealed with a smoking firepot and a flaming torch that God uses to ensure the sealing of the covenant, showing the presence of God as a covenant maker. In Exodus 3, on the very mountain is the burning bush. There is fire again that God reminds him of the promise. He, he says, um, don't come too close because I am holy. And now we are at Sinai where his holiness is seen in and through fire and he is going to make promises with his people. He approaches with fire. But not only does he approach with fire, he also approaches as a cloud. See, it was the pillar of cloud that had guided God's people from chapter 13. And he will continue to, to, to lead them through a pillar of cloud till it settles in the tabernacle. It was the pillar of cloud that revealed his glory in chapter 16, verse 20, when they were mumbling. And it's into the cloud that Moses goes to meet God. Alec Matoya, the, the, the commentator, said this, Like fire, cloud symbolizes the presence of God, but in the sense that he is shrouding, not abandoning or diminishing his glory, so that he could accommodate himself to live amongst his people, to grace them with his presence, which in its awful holiness would spell destruction. Folks, in his approaching in this way, God is saying, despite the fact that you are sinners, I still want you in my life. That's good news. That's good news. And ultimately, how does he do that? He does that through a mediator who ensures that the people live. Verses 21 to 25. Verse 20, 20, 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. It seems that in some way, the people will be coming a bit lax, so God sends Moses to warn, to mediate, to ensure that they don't break through, touch the mountain, and die, okay? Then he tells Moses to come back and bring Aaron, his brother, with him. But he says, don't let the other priests or the other people come up or they will die. Now, to ensure that the people didn't die, God sent Moses back to mediate. And to ensure that the people didn't die in the future, the bringing back of Aaron was the beginning of starting to put in place the priestly responsibility of the high priest who would once a year make a sacrifice for the people. It was another step in what the limits needed to be put in place for God to be in, presence, in the presence of his people and for his people to enjoy his blessings. See, the mediator... Somebody that stepped in between had some sort of relationship with both God and the people. And under God's instructions, their actions ensured that the people did not die. Verse 21, Moses go down. And Moses left the presence of God to ensure the salvation of the people. And he did that till they entered into the promised land. But the writer of the Hebrews, as I close, says this. Talking about God's people it, at this time, they could not endure the order that was given. They couldn't endure it. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. Moses was the mediator who trembled with fear. But folks, we now have a mediator, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who does not tremble with fear because he is in loving, perfect relationship with the Father. He is the judge of all. He is the firstborn of a new creation. And he is the one who makes us right and perfect before God. And he mediates a covenant, not a covenant of law, but a new covenant of grace. And that covenant is sealed by his blood. It says there, the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than Abel. That's interesting. Abel was the first human being ever to be murdered by his brother Cain. And Abel did not deserve to die. And the Bible said that the blood of Abel, says that the blood of Abel cried out vengeance and justice. But Jesus, our mediator, who also did not deserve to die. His blood does not cry out vengeance, but his blood cries out grace. It cries out grace. Moses went down and mediated so the people would not die. Jesus came down to die so that we would not have to. And his blood cries grace. And he mediates. He represents he makes a way so sinners like you and me can come into the presence of God boldly and enjoy his blessing without fear of condemnation, without fear of punishment, and without fear of death. And folks, we no longer have to wash or prepare because we have been washed by the blood of Jesus. And we are being shaped by his word and spirit. And even though at times it feels like we are being led miles in the wrong direction, we know he is leading us to the land and the place that he has promised, a new creation, where all pain and suffering will be gone. And God will dwell amongst his people, and we will walk with him, and we will know him, and we will live in a world that we all want. Folks, Peter, many years after this was written, quotes this, what we've just read from verses 4 and 6. He says of the church, you're a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are the treasured possession of God so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The reality and order of grace is a beautiful thing when we realize that we, in and of ourselves, cannot approach a holy God. But God graciously, either through a mediator, comes in and breaks down all limits, all barriers, so that people like you and me can not only walk and touch the mountain, but we can run and enjoy his embrace. Let's pray. Father, thank you and praise you. that You are a gracious God. A gracious God who gives of himself in all his holiness and glory to save people like us. How can that be? 
How can it be that you are mindful of people like us? How can it be that you want people like us in your life? How can it be that you call us treasured possessions? How could it be that you want us to represent you in this world? How can it be that you use people like us to display your glory? Answer, because of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before have enjoyed the cross, despised and the shame, and we thank you now that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, mediating for us. Help us to be the people who you've called us to be. Help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to realize the blessings that are ours in Christ. And as we come to the table now, we ask, Lord, that we would realize the wonderful blessings as we walk in obedience by remembering what you've done for us in Christ as we eat bread and drink this wine together, that you would remind us afresh of what you've done for us. And yeah, Lord, we may look at this and think this is just gospel 101. I thank you that it is this that we need every moment of every day till Jesus comes back. And then we will fully understand the truth of the gospel. We thank you for this bread. We thank you for this wine. And we pray that you will be glorified as we eat and as we sing. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, let's break, let's eat, let's drink, let's pray with one another, who are with next to one another. Let's thank God for his grace and his wonder. Can I say this, though? If you're not a Christian, please let this pass. If you've not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, please let this pass. This is something that we do as God's people, those who have come to understand and know. In fact, there is this point in the Bible when Paul talks about this, that there is a limit, there is a barrier between you and salvation, which is your sin. Now Christ has dealt with that. And only by faith in him can you eat and can you drink. But also for Christian peoples, there, there is a limit. Because if you name the name of Christ, but you are not willing to forgive a brother or sister in Christ, you are cheapening the grace of God that he has given to you. And the Bible says this, if you eat and drink, like that, you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, therefore you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. That is serious. So do hard work before God. If you've got to say sorry to someone, or if you've got to seek someone else's forgiveness, or you probably most likely have to forgive somebody else. Follow the order of grace. Show forgiveness in the way that you've been shown. Be marked by that grace and then eat and drink. If you need someone to pray with you, please raise your hand or come to the front. There'll be people here. Paul's here. I'm here. There are others. And we can pray and we can eat and we can drink and then we can celebrate. Amen? Amen. Let's eat and drink and be thankful.